clubhouse for the local senior citizens who might spend an entire afternoon huddled over a single serving of rice pudding. The K&W was past its prime, whereas my cafeteria was located in the sparkling new Crabtree Valley, a former swamp that made her mall look like a dusty tribal marketplace. The Piccadilly had red velvet walls and a dining room lit by artificial torches. 
A suit of armor marked the entrance to this culinary castle where, we were told, the customer was always king. As a dishwasher, I spent my shifts yanking trays off a conveyor belt and feeding their contents into an enormous, foul-mouthed machine that roared and spat until its charges, free of congealed fat and gravy, came steaming out the other end, fogging my glasses and filling the air with the harsh smell of chlorine. I didn't care for the heat or the noise, but other than that, I enjoyed my job. The work kept my hands busy, but left my mind free to concentrate on more important matters. Sometimes I would study from the list of irregular Spanish verbs I kept posted over the sink, but most often I found myself fantasizing about a career in television. It was my dream to create and star in a program called Socrates and Company in which I would travel from place to place accompanied by a brilliant and loyal proboscis monkey. Socrates and I wouldn't go looking for trouble, but week after week it would manage to find us. The eyes, Socrates, go for the eyes, I'd yell during one of our many fight scenes. Maybe in Santa Fe I'd be hit over the head by a heavy jug and lose my memory. Somewhere in Utah, Socrates might discover a satchel of valuable coins or befriend someone wearing a turban, but at the end of every show, we would realize that true happiness often lies where you very least expect it. It might arrive in the form of a gentle breeze or a handful of peanuts, but when it came, we would seize it with our own brand of folksy wisdom. I'd planned it so that the final moments of each episode would find Socrates and me standing before the audiences. to me that we were all held captive in that prison known as the human mind. I would muse, or it suddenly occurred to me that freedom was perhaps the greatest gift of all. I'd hoped to crack these people like nuts, sifting through their brains and coming away with the lessons garnered by a lifetime of regret. Unfortunately, Having spent the better part of their lives behind bars, the men and women I worked with seemed to have learned nothing except how to get out of doing their jobs. Kettles boiled over and steaks were routinely left to blacken on the grill as my co-workers crept off to the stockroom to smoke and play cards or sometimes have sex. It suddenly occurred to me that people are lazy, my reflective TV voice would say. This was hardly a major news flash, and as a closing statement, it would undoubtedly fail to warm the hearts of my television audience, who by their very definition were probably not too active themselves. No, my message needed to be more upbeat and spiritually rewarding. Joy, I'd think, whacking the dirty plates against the edge of the slop can. What brings people joy? 
As Christmas approached, I found my valuable fantasy time cut in half. The mall was crazy now with hungry shoppers, and every three minutes I had the assistant manager on my back, hollering for more coffee cups and vegetable bowls. The holiday customers formed a loud and steady line that reached past the coat of arms all the way to the suit of armor at the front door. They wore cheerful Santas pinned to their bobbled shirts and carried oversized bags laden with power tools and assorted cheeses, bought as gifts for friends and relatives. It made me sad and desperate to see so many people, strangers whose sheer numbers eroded the sense of importance I was working so hard to invent. Where did they come from and why couldn't they just go home? I might swipe their trays off the belt without once wondering who these people were and why they hadn't bothered to finish their breaded cutlets. They meant nothing to me, and watching them move down the line towards the cashier, it became apparent that the feeling was mutual. They wouldn't even remember the meal, much less the person who had provided them with their piping hot tray. How was it that I was important and they were not? There had to be something that separated us. I had always looked forward to Christmas, but now my enthusiasm struck me as cheap and common. Leaving the cafeteria after work, I would see even more people swarming out of the shops and restaurants like bees from a burning hive. Here were the young couples in their stocking caps and the families clustered beside the fountain, each with its lists and marked envelopes of money. It was no wonder the Chinese people couldn't tell them apart. They were sheep, Stupid animals programmed by nature to mate and graze and bleed out their wishes to the obese, retired school principal who sat on his ass in the mall's sorry-looking North Pole. My animosity was getting the best of me until I saw in their behavior a solution to my troubling identity crisis. Let them have their rolls of gift wrap and gaudy, personalized stockings. If it meant something to them, I wanted nothing to do with it. This year, I would be the one without the shopping bags, the one wearing black in protest of their thoughtless commercialism. My very avoidance would set me apart and cause these people to question themselves in ways that would surely pain them. Who are we, they'd ask, plucking the ornaments off their trees. What have we become, and why can't we be more like that somber fellow who washes dishes down at the Piccadilly cafeteria? Nuts roasting on an open fire. 
Jack Frost nipping at your nose. You'll die, Carol. He sung by a choir. Folks dressed like black Eskimo. Yeah. 
some money click on the website we deserve it
my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van whose owner stood examining his flattened tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason, charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow huge and menacing against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled t-shirt and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantle.
get you another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer. He's got 
Something's fucked up with this turntable.
With only seven shopping days left until Christmas, Colonel Steve Austin suddenly remembers he has not bought any gifts for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffrey's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in person. Any particular fragrance? Uh, I thought you might be able to suggest something. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted when he's registering a complaint. Hey, stop that man! He stole my Christmas present! Hey, you! Stop! Watch it, mister. Crowd at the store. Sorry to get hurt. Sorry, pal. I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid. Go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. The one that Santa Claus gave me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted a surprise. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. Put that gun away. Someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. Now stand aside. I'm walking out. the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California.
After landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Ramat at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we? We expect to resume normal broadcasting shortly. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second ident code before signing off. 
and this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
turned them into affections, and they've made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange, because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written... This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000, after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north can see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three-quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road. He was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three-quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights. The license plate and the back windows are dirty. I register these things with no thought that I have been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
movies, of course. Oh!
I'm your boogeyman. That's what I am. I'm here to whatever I can. Be in early morning, late afternoon, or at midnight. Oh, it's never too soon to want to beat you. I'm your boogeyman, I'm the boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, that's what I am. I'm here to whatever I can, be it really body. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, that's what I am. I'm here to whatever I can, be in early morning. I am so 
Welcome to L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's an acronym. It stands for Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. Whoa, hi. How you doing? Oh, it's hi, Mike Spiegelman and Carl and... Oh, yes. We have a very special guest. My brother, Adam Spiegelman, returns to our show. Hi, Adam. Hey, girl. Hey, hey girl. girl. Hey. My brother has one of the best podcasts still in distribution. You can find it at Proudly Resents. A really good cult movie uh, podcast and a big influence on this show. So, hello, welcome back, Adam. Oh, thanks for having me, and uh, good to meet you, Mike. Is it Spiegelman or Spiegelman? It's Spiegelman. <laughs> oh, I okay, would... good. And I'm really Carl... excited to have you. Maybe we won't have a celebrity comedian countdown today. Are we having a celebrity comedian countdown today? Oh, uh, whatever you want to do, I have right. them in my back pocket. We don't need to do it. We have Adam. Apparently, yeah. I'm neither a celebrity nor a comedian. A comedian. Can you count right. out? Yeah, I. Sure. From where? It depends from where. Seven. Yeah. <laughs> we we are right now streaming first on Mutiny Radio FM. It is the internet radio station based in San Francisco, and broadcasts around the world. So, hello world. Get our podcast L W A F L M O Y T. That's why we say the acronym up front. Find the podcast and at your leisure, listen to the podcast and watch the movie at the same time. 
Maybe you're even lazier. We have a YouTube channel, Carl. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Moderate Thanks. And uh, he actually syncs the movie with the podcast, so you don't I'm have to curator. do that extra step. And you can watch it anytime at LWA. At your leisure, leisure, not leisure. At your leisure. That word is so banal. <laughs> <laughs> Did I pronounce that word right? Uh, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-I-T is our YouTube channel. So we want you to like someone and smash them. Not, not anything related. Carl, what is the movie we're watching this week? We will watch this week. We're watching Brooke Shields again, and it's our third movie. Brenda Starr. Okay, Brenda Starr, 1989. That's what you put in the YouTube search engine. Brenda, you know how to spell that. Stars with two R's, 1989. And then it goes on to say what? It says Brooke Shields and... Um, but Dalton. anyway, you will find the channel that is Gamer. Something Gamer. That's your channel. It's I-R-S-Y-A-D, Syad... Syad Gamer is the channel we like. Brenda Starr, 2Rs, 1989. All right. Sounds good. Let's take it from Carl. Go find Brenda Starr, 1989. That's the one with Brooke Shields. Dad Gamer is uh, hosting it for us. Find the link. Click it. Hit pause. Move it the timer to zero, zero, zero. And now, without further ado, Carl, take yeah. it away. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Celebrity Countdown, this time with Kathleen Wilhoyt. Welcome, Kathleen. So today we're watching Brenda Starr, 1986, and this is why we have you on. You are playing the character Hank O'Hare. This character is very, very masculine, you know? Was that fun for you? How did you feel about it? I mean, you're in a suit and tie, right? Well, I'll just tell you, I was on a roll at the time. I was getting cast in a lot of things. I even looked at an old interview where I actually said the words, getting acting jobs has never been very difficult for me, which <laughs> is so not far from the truth today. <laughs> I, I, I was shocked. It was an interview I did for CNN. And, that, and I would say that Brenda Starr was amidst a series of gigs that I just got cast in without auditioning, which to me is the gold star of an acting career. If you don't audition for something, it's just fantastic. I mean, to me, it's the greatest thing in an actor's yeah. life. Like, you, you know, of course, people who don't have to audition for, uh, for jobs, um, just you can see them just bask in the glow of a fabulous life. And I got to experience that for a brief period in my life, and it was fantastic. So I didn't audition for the part of um, Great. Hair. I was cast in it. Um, and I was so, as they say in uh, whatever, full of the beans or whatever, I was so um, just full of myself, I guess. I didn't even read the script. I was just like on a plane flying to Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. So I'm reading the script and I was like looking for my part. And it was, I was, I couldn't, I kept having to reread like, which part am I? I read the <laughs> script. And I was like, I don't know what part I'm supposed to play. 
I remember I got off the plane. I called my manager. He said, oh, you're playing Hank. I thought, Hank? I thought that was a, like a dude. I don't know what yeah. out of my mind. And then I looked at it in my hotel room. I was like, oh, shit. This is a cartoon movie. So uh, I also have a thing where I can't stand to suck. I can't stand it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, how bizarre that they were like, we got to get Kathleen for this part. But then I just surrendered to it and I was like, you know what? It's kind of awesome to get to play a cartoon character. It's kind of cool. I did some research on it and, uh, well, I, actually at the time there was no internet. So I guess I didn't do any research on it. The library. Yeah, and I didn't go to the library, but so I just started to try to figure out how to play this role. And I remember I went into makeup and hair, and the makeup person was like, we're going to paint freckles on your face. And yeah. the costume people were like, we're going to put a pillbox hat on your head, and then you're going to have a hank of hair that curls up on the pillbox hat, and you smoke a cigar all the time. I was like, oh, and so then I developed... I just went and kind of did a crash course, again, not wanting to suck, and developed my character, um, you know, and the voice. I think I had a voice yeah. in that, hey, you know, Hank O'Hare. And I think I just thought, like, the way to not suck in a cartoon movie is to go broad, be big, own it, don't apologize, and just swan dive into the clown of it all and hope you hope you stick the landing. So that's basically... And you really did. I mean, the clown of it all, like uh, like when you're in the hospital scene, uh, like you're you're quirky and you're moving your head around, you're way pronounced and over-exaggerating. So I thought you were only in Jacksonville because half of it was shot in Puerto Rico, but I really don't think you're part of that. You were in you were in the, the press offices of The Flash. Uh, you were in the hospital scene. I think you had a scene on the street, if I recall. Was it a quick shoot for you? Well, how about this? Because this is a sentence I haven't had the privilege of uttering in since then. I was doing two movies at the same time. I was doing a movie in New Orleans called, geez, I don't remember what it was called, but my friend David Nydorf was in it and mm -hmm. Jennifer Jason Lee. I can't remember what it was called. So I was doing that movie and I was doing Brenda Starr and I was flying between New Orleans and Jacksonville doing uh -huh. both movies. So I was only in Jacksonville, never went to Puerto Rico, did you say? Yeah, yeah, they I did. I never went there. Um, and I don't remember anything about it. Well, <laughs> 1986 was a big year for you. I mean, at least in terms of the releases that came out. I mean... Films get shot, of course, before their release, but you had Witchboard. You also had a movie called The Morning After, which we've also done on our podcast. That was with Jeff Bridges and Jane Fonda. But my, your best thing in 1986 is you were starring your handcuff to Charles Bronson in a great film. I don't know if I call it a great film, but it was a Charles yeah. Bronson film. And Charles Bronson is amazing and cool and... You know, the thing that's embar that embarrasses me about that is, like, it was, 
um, it was not a realistic script, obviously. Uh -huh. And I feel like at the time I was in New York doing a play and people would follow me around sort of going, Hey, butthole. Hey, you know, like doing like the crazy names of the, mm -hmm. the character was supposed to be like a potty mouth, but it was kind of psychotic because it wasn't any kind of name that anyone would ever call anybody. And again, at being a beggar, not a, a chooser, what beggars can't be choosers. I was happy to have the part and I was happy to work. I didn't, you know, it wasn't, I've never gotten to choose the parts that I play, um, mm -hmm. I, which is really to me, the sign of, just enormous success yeah. and I still look forward to the day when I get to choose the parts I get to play but as, right offers. now and back then I was lucky to get what I could get I got you now you said you didn't really remember the shoot I was going to ask you if there's any stories or anecdotes about Brenda Starr uh, maybe something that you know I mean, well, did you speak with Brooke a lot, or you don't know yeah. a thing about it, or? No, I do, I do. I mean, Brooke is my age, right? She's, I think, probably we were born at this, uh, in, in within like two or three years of each other. So at the time, we were both in our twenties. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing her at the hotel, and her beauty was otherworldly. Like yeah. I remember going, oh, that's that's a different kind of pretty than I've <laughs> ever seen in my life. Because her face, she's tall, uh, and she was super famous at the time. Yeah, but it was still like, remarkable. She was remarkably beautiful, and I thought to myself, I remember consciously thinking to myself, that chick would not be able to have a normal career in some small town in the United States because mm -hmm. her looks were exceptional and uh, and then her mother was also a big big character in the cast and crew she had a big presence her mother was kind of body and she and Brooke had a very very close uh, relationship and there was a lot of I remember people being a little intimidated by her mother. Mm -hmm. um, her mother kind of uh, inserted herself in a lot of the decision-making uh, decision making in the production of the film. And I think at the time, and this is vague, of course, but I think that was really at, at, a, at the beginning of when Brooke was starting to want to take more control of her own career and life mm. at that time. She was in a, probably in her early 20s, I would suspect. Like, yeah, so she was just like 20, 21. Well, I know that she was in college at the time, and we graduate, what, 22, I think, is when you graduate. Yeah. So it must be a young 20. And that's also the time in which you look at your parents and start to rebel. But her mother was a big part of this film even getting made. I mean, she pursued the director, and she was the one who pulled the people together to do the financing and everything. So oh. it makes sense that she's, like, large and in charge like that. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, they, she's in the lobby and gesticulating. But I, I found her to be, love, you know, funny. She was always nice to me. I had no, you know, who am I? I'm just a, you know, an actress in the thing. And and um um, Brooke had like an assistant. She had like two people around her that were our age. 
that were her good friends as well, uh -huh. like assistants or something that she hung out with. But I was also going through my own kind of self-destructive, you know, phase of life. I don't know if I was probably the most professional. <laughs> Yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I can tell you that when I look back at that time, because I had such an abundance of opportunities, kind of, it felt like the Brinks truck backed up and dumped <laughs> money into my backyard. And it, now, again, I say this because that's not my life today. And it today. wasn't my life like in my 30s. You know, I've had to work really hard and I'm grateful for any job I get now and but at that time I got to experience my little 15 minutes and it was I loved I had a blast and I was simultaneously uh self-destructing in a, a kind of pathetic way you know drinking a lot and doing whatever uh destructive stuff I could I think maybe I could not really handle my good fortune and felt mm -hmm. unworthy inside. Like if they really get to know me, if they really, they'll see I'm an untalented kind of ding dong student. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just so sad. Yeah. I think of myself because now I'm like, oh, that's crazy. Why would you ever do that? But at the time, you know, I just, I, you know, look, we all go through our phases. Yes. Do you, yes. Do you have a phase like that? I mean, yes. You know, We've yeah. all been young, you know, yeah. and we don't have our perspective. And right. I can imagine being young and getting all this uh, success thrust upon you. And uh, you're kind of like navigating it yourself and, and there are new experiences. So I could absolutely see you like making or, or whomever uh, making choices that you wouldn't make today with a much more, you know, you know, you were kind of saying today, I think you're really working a lot today. I mean, what you what do you have CSI Vegas is that's oh yeah I did I did weird. yeah I did that season that killed me oops nope oh, yeah. don't spoil right I know right I did that season and I had a ball that was great I got to work with Marga Hogenberger and I've worked with her before so it was fun to see her again um but you're I mean I feel really good about my life it's just that um uh I, I don't know. I have a lot of joy in my life. I guess, you know, you have to go through things in order to get where you are. And today yes. you know, I'm a mother of three, three grown children, you know, they're all doing well. I'm proud of them all. Great. I'm happily married. I love hiking in the mountains with my dogs. I love my friends. I love Southern California. So, I mean, you know, like my story has what I perceive to be a, pretty solid happily ever after I even tell my students because i also teach mm -hmm. tell arts and also i'm teaching at ucsb this next semester but i tell them listen if i get hit by a stray bullet someday every one of you should know that i had a good run because i did i've had a lot of fun in my life it's been really... and, and it's ongoing i mean you were yeah. just in yellowstone uh you yes. did seven episodes of that cartoon that uh summer camp island i think oh yeah yeah that's fun yeah and you know i never got to see but i got i guess i could say that i've worked with um who is the guy who played my husband he's like a famous english yeah. actor I yeah and i could just say him. like oh i've worked with that guy you know that's yeah. cool <laughs> in a virtual way right yeah 
I never got to meet him, but you know, he sure is good. I saw him in Red, this play about Rothko, Philip Roth. So awesome. I understand that you auditioned for Phoebe on Friends, right? Oh, that's the, um, yeah, yeah, I did. That would have been great. Right. That was, um, I tell that to my students when I talk about uh, auditioning. Um, I went to the network, which is like the final stage of the auditions. And it was me, Pam Adlon, and the Cheku's Phoebe. What's her name? Yeah. The blonde, um, I, I, don't know. I know her as Phoebe. And every time I see her in another movie, I think, oh, Phoebe's branching out. I know. I can't Ooh, believe I can't remember her name. She's just obscenely famous and, and successful mm -hmm. and delightful, and everyone loves her. Anyway, she was there. And uh, I I was going to do like a whole, I had dyed black hair at the time, a lot of black eyeliner. I wore uh -huh. like black. I was going to do like a whole uh, Chrissy Hines kind of ding dong. You know, oh, the character was supposed to be kind of, but she did like a hippie thing. Anyway, rejection's God's protection, uh, you know. But <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a that's a second or third place situation. And <laughs> You know, well, you know uh, how my life would have changed if I had died. It would have, yes, absolutely, you know, it would have yeah. been. So, um, uh, last Brenda Star question, I kind of don't think it was on your radar, the release, but there was years and years of waiting for this thing to release. Were you ever, I'm sure that you were moving on to other acting parts at that point, and you weren't sitting there going, when is Brenda Star coming out? Did you have any, did it ever cross your mind, when is this movie going to release? Good question. I will tell you that one of the things that I love about acting is the actual acting part, ah, the actual okay. sending and receiving and doing the thing and cut and makeup and hair and creating the characters. The thing that I'm not as much a fan of is the release, the uh, screenings, the interviews, the post, yeah. post acting stuff. That stuff makes me... Uh, I'm not comfortable with that. So the answer to your question is because I I have never been thrilled about the opening of a movie, nor have I ever carried a movie outside of Murphy's Law. But even then, that was such a Charles Bronson was such a strong draw and presence. It's not like they were like it's the Kathleen Wilson. <laughs> no, that was yeah. a Charles Bronson movie, and right. so. Um, I could tell you that I don't have a consciousness. I don't care. I didn't care when it was released. I didn't, I, I like, I don't even watch. I'm also one of those actors. I don't like to watch my stuff. I never saw oh, it. Oh, you're I one of those. Really? I don't watch it because I see like a chin on a butt floating around a screen, like in a voice. Yeah. I can't see myself with any kind of, I mean, I sometimes I will. Like I told you, I ended up watching I don't know how I got onto it, but that CNN interview of when I was in my 20s saying, like, I've never oh, really had to work hard for an acting gig. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, what? But it was true at the time. It was true, it was at, the true at the time, I can tell you, for that little tiny window. And I had a record deal, and I was doing cartoon and movies. Yeah. I had a really good manager back then who I didn't treat very well and who – really provided me with a lot of opportunities a, a man named alan summers and he um probably the one of many 
foolish moves I made in uh, retrospect in my acting career was firing him. So. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. And we will all have the, you know, you would want to go back. And, well, I don't know that you'd want to go back and change stuff because you turned out great, you know. Well, yeah. You were describing things, you know. Right. So It did work out, I have to say, but. Absolutely. Well, I do have a few things of like, oh, <laughs> really? Did you do that? You know? Yeah. I, I, I guess we all it. do and everybody does. Yes, but. it's really true. So I, we're about to do this countdown and watch this film together, but I still have one last thing. I would like to see your eyes. I hear that they're different colored. Can you show me this? You are human, right? Oh, there we go. So, does that do you feel about having different colored eyes? I'm sure nowadays it doesn't even cross your mind, but I mean, in the past, you must have thought, what's did you feel like it was strange? I mean, it must have been, it's attractive in a way, it's different, it's quirky. I never, you know, I just make jokes. I'm the girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Yeah. Nah, that doesn't have, you know. And a lot of times I'll tell people, I got two different colored eyes, and they look at me and they say, no, you don't. It's well, like, I've been trying to see it throughout the whole interview. I had to get up close, you know? Yeah, it's like one is brown and green, and one's green and brown. So. Well, that's very unique. It's very, <laughs> you know, it's it's neat. <laughs> okay, now. All right, now. Wait. We, everybody at home is poised to press play at the same time we do here in the studio. So everybody's queued up and ready to go. So why don't you go ahead, Kathleen Wilhoyt, and give us that celebrity countdown. Three, two, one, go! All right. Thank you, Celebrity Comedian Countdown, for that, that Celebrity Comedian Countdown. Oh, worst president ever. The triumph? Oh, it's a triumph. Sorry. Do you I mean see Truman? Trump's name everywhere. Because he will be in this film. The worst president ever, Truman, Harry S. Truman, will be in this film. But now that we've got Trump, is it really true anymore? He's not the worst. Right. Sure. Maybe there'll be another worst president. We'll have to wait. Brenda Starr, the cartoon show, the comic strip. I can't believe you guys now, made comic strips political. This is a comic strip that was in um well oh, it was out of the Jeffrey Chicago I'm out of here. You guys remember this from growing up, right? In the Sunday funnies? Can I just tell you this? I, I I'm not that smart. Like I, I couldn't follow the it's only three panels a day. Nothing really <laughs> happened and and you don't read it every day and you don't know. I always got lost, so you can really she was fall cute. She had like a tiny little nose and I'd read that. I'm always like look out behind you, Mary Worth. Nope. Yeah, I can't tell them weird. apart. Look out, Rex Harrington. Timothy Dalton was in this movie? Yeah. He had a career. A and, like, did you know it, he existed before James Bond? I knew he was in this movie. Well, he was in Flash Gordon, wasn't he? Yes. Yes, he was. Yes. He was like a famous British actor. So this is cute. Like, comic book movies before Marvel, they really didn't know how to do them. So they always have to show the art itself. Yeah, the like, drawing, right. Because draw, it's a comic book movie based on a comic book. Bob Mackie, nice. Well, he really yeah. is involved in his mouth. <laughs> look at that I know old, what's up with that. Um, look at that uh, old style, uh, you know, pencil sharpener. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Old-timey coffee, Rostin. Now, Timothy oh, Dalton start, started in The Lion in Winter, one of my favorite films. You guys you know were, that. Yeah, film. we talked about that film. He was the king of France. Come to visit. The, 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 car, the cartoon, the comic strip, the character he plays has a patch on his eye. So it's like yep. one of those movie magic to see the actual character in real life, even though he looks, you know, goofy. Right. He plays Basil St. John, who was always a mysterious figure in the um, cartoon, in the com you know, comic strip uh, of Brenda Starr. Brenda Starr was a reporter, and that would take her on lots and lots of adventures. Now, the woman who writes for Brenda Starr used to get letters from reporters saying, this is bullshit. My <laughs> life is not like this at all. And she, she was like, that's why you're not in a comic strip. Right. Yeah, let's do a comic strip about you trying to pay your taxes. Now, and, we've uh, making got phone the calls. sound on mute, which is a big mistake because Mike always has the sound up. And what he's doing is he's insulting Brenda Starr. You see, he's taken this job. Oh, now you turn it on. He's taken this job because he needs to pay the bills. He's not a Brenda Starr fan, so he chastises her and insults her while he's drawing her. And she's fed up. Is she going to come to life in this panel? No. Bingo. In this panel? Here she goes. Coming to life. All right. But Brenda should wear in great queen. Look, it's the actual cartoonist. Dylan. Oh, it is? I forget the name of the cartoonist, but that was the signature. Well, the cartoonist, you might know as Dale, but it's Dahlia Messick. She oh. was the artist and writer who created it. We're going back to the early 40s. Here she comes. Here she comes to life. What? This is like Cool World. Right. I've put up with your Night after night. God bless you, Brooke. What? That's it. She's out of here. She, she went from cartoon to real life. Bingo. How is that possible? Buh, 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 fuh, fuh, buh, buh. Guess That's what? Me. We will never have it explained. It just starts like... We, we got to make a movie based on a comic strip. Oh, gosh, that's going to take a lot of setup. People are not ready for a comic book movie. We better have a preface where the cartoonist is drawing it during the opening credits. I mean, honestly, don't you think this is a better opening than a guy drawing a picture? Now, here's but, Green Acres, yeah. dude. Uh, he's, he's the top cop, the Green Acres. Eddie Albert? Mike, what's the name of the pig from Green Acres? Oh, gosh. Harley? Marley? Wait. Um, there was a fan club for that pig, too. Now, this Josh is Dr. our, our anyway. bad guy, who's a Just gal. Kidding. Okay, she's the riot. Okay, Just go kidding. ahead. What's the pig's name? Listen, I don't want you to blow this. This is the main and villain, <gasps> okay? She is a rival reporter, and she hates Brenda Starr. She looks like Brooke, like a blonde Brooke. Okay, now, I watched Green Acres on the reruns and everything, and I remember something about the pig was a big deal. What, yeah. is, what was its name? That's the thing. He, he, Arnold? No. Arnold. Was Arnold. it? Hang on. Siri, what's the name of the pig from Green Acres? Dasha <laughs> Gabor. The fuck you <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's Adam's joke. He said, Adam's, my, Carl, you gave Mike credit for that? That's Siri, oh, Mike. Mike. Well, he is a celebrity comedian. Yeah, uh -huh. he is. Three, both. two, one, go. Get it together. That's how you do it, kid.
No, well, Linda has used her street smarts and her gumption and determination and tenacity to worm her way into a hostage situation, although she's not a hostage yet, because she wants to get the story and she wants to scoop lips. lips what is the story? Uh, you know, there's a cro 